Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Thanks, Graham. I want to let you know right up front, first of all, I'm excited to be here to look at God's Word with you, but I want to tell you right from the beginning what my goal is, okay? I'm going to be real clear on what I hope to accomplish this morning. This is it. Are you listening? I want to make you homesick. That's my goal. This morning, I want to make you homesick. Now, I know that may seem a little bit cruel. I mean, school's just starting. There are people here from out of town. Some of them are away from home for the first time, right? So that doesn't seem fair to talk about being homesick. But actually, those people are probably the ones that will appreciate our passage this morning more than most. But we've all been there. I know a lot of us were traveling and on vacation this summer. And as good as it was, there was probably a point in time where you're just ready to get back home. Sleep in your own bed, take a shower in your own shower. If you're Carrie Gilbert, walk around the house in your underwear, right? It's just good to be home sometimes. Now, if you're Matt Wade, you were in Hawaii this summer, and so I don't know if he was ready to be home or not, but most of us, we reach a point where we're ready to be home. And probably if you've ever been in the hospital, I've never met anybody who wasn't ready to be home after being in the hospital. I mean, not only just sleeping in your own bed, but just the fact that you can sleep through the night without somebody coming in the room, turning on the light, making a bunch of noise, just to check and see if you're sleeping okay. (laughs) I was until you walked in, is the way it usually works. The other occasion I think of that uh, we often are ready to be home is when we've been to another country. It's so great to experience different cultures, but if you go someplace where you don't speak the language and and you're not used to the foods and the smells and everything's foreign to you, you probably reach a point where you're kind of like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. There's no place like home, right? Well, this morning, I want you to know that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that's the way you should feel about being in this world and waiting for the day when you get to go home. You should be homesick. The Bible says that you and I are living as aliens and strangers in a foreign land. And we really should be ready to go home. In fact, the longer we're here, the more ready we should be. And so if you're not homesick, I really hope and pray with all sincerity, by the time we're done this morning, you will be. Let's pray to that end together. God, I do ask that as we come before you this morning, that uh, maybe in some ways you even unsettle our heart a little bit, uh, kind of release perhaps some of the, the ties that we have to being comfortable in this world when we're reminded that this is not our home, that we don't belong here. <laughs> this is a foreign land, but yet we're here for a purpose and we want to fulfill what you've called us to But deep inside our hearts, help us to to reach that place where we just long to be home so that we can be with you. That's our heart and prayer as we look at your word this morning. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, you can go ahead and turn there if you want to. We're in 1 John uh, chapter 2. But before we look at our passage this morning, I want to speak to the the transition that John is about to make that's real important for us to see. 
he's gone to great lengths up to this point to make sure that the reader is not distracted by the teaching of the false teachers that surround them. He spoke about the urgency of this being the last hour and in the importance of being grounded in God's truth. He, he talks about those things which they heard from the beginning. And this is what gives them the, the assurance of their salvation and reminds them of that most important promise of eternal life. He looks back at the testimony of Jesus and he talks about the impact that it should make in our lives and says that we should walk just as he walked. But now in verse 28, he begins to turn his attention to something yet future. <laughs> Another aspect of what should motivate us, but instead of what's happening here and now, it's what is to come. And let's look at that together beginning in verse 28. It says, And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you know that Everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now know that we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. He begins by saying, Abide in Him so that you have confidence at His coming. The first thing I want you to realize as you look at this passage is that there's an assurance, there's a, a certainty of Christ's return, right? It, it doesn't say if He comes. What does it say? When He comes. The day has been set, as we've talked about before. And what I know for sure is that today is one day closer to the day of His return. The Bible is filled with promises about the coming of Christ. In fact, let me give you an example. You can write this down. You don't have to turn there. Just listen to it, to it as a read. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. Describes it this way. It's for the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. See, this is one of many descriptions that you'll find in Scripture about the assurance of Christ's return. And in our hearts, it should be the day that we long for. The day when we are with our Savior, and in fellowship with Him for all eternity. As John has already pointed out, we live in the last hour. And we talked about what that means. It's that, that window of opportunity 
where we have the unique privilege in all of history to proclaim the salvation message of faith in Christ alone. But it's the last hour because there is a day that Christ returns. And when that happens, time is up. Because that day He comes to, as the Scripture says, judge both the living and the dead. But Jesus is not slow about His returning as some count slowness. The Scripture tells us that He's patient. And the reason that He's patient is because He doesn't want anyone to perish, but all to come to a place of repentance. But the fact is, Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And and the reality of this judgment clearly indicates that there are some who won't believe. Otherwise, why would the Scripture talk about the need for for Jesus to separate the, the sheep from the goats? The ones who have trusted in His love and those who have rejected it. In fact, most will reject the gracious offer of salvation and choose instead to go their own way, to to chart their own course, to, to do what is right in their own eyes, to follow the ways of the world instead of truly committing themselves to follow Christ. And on the day of His return, These are the ones that he describes in verse 28 as those who will shrink away in shame at his coming. The phrase of shrinking away in shame is not intended to communicate simply an emotion of embarrassment. It literally means a speechless response to God's judgment. It's the overwhelming conviction that what you were unwilling to accept is now proven in an instant to be true. And the reason is, is because you will be looking at and seeing the risen Christ with your own eyes. And it's on that day that the Scripture tells us every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. For some, that confession will be a joyous confirmation of their faith. The day that they have been longing for. For others, those same words will be a shameful acknowledgement of guilt. The day they had become convinced would never come. John is reminding his reader to remain faithful. Because the ones that remain faithful in their fellowship with Christ are the ones that stand confident at His return. The word for confidence that that he uses in this passage literally means to have an absence of fear when speaking. It's the same word that he'll use a couple of other times in this same letter when he's talking about our heart and our attitude when we go to God in prayer. You see, even though we have not seen Jesus face to face, those who are faithful have found themselves in His presence many times before that point. They have, as the writer of Hebrews said, gone to the the throne of grace with confidence, knowing that they will find mercy and grace to help in a time of need. 
they are the ones, as John has already said in his letter that we've looked at, that, that confess their sins, knowing that God is faithful and just to forgive them of their sins and to cleanse them of all unrighteousness. Now, they'll be surprised, just like all of us will be surprised, because nobody knows when that day will come. But they will be confident because they're ready. There's a story that Chuck Swindoll tells about the time he worked in a machine shop. And there was a guy who worked with him by the name of George. George had a pretty thankless job of cleaning out uh, the metal shavings under these huge lathes that were being used all during the day. So his job was to go around throughout the day sweeping and cleaning the shop up as the work was going on. But despite the fact that he had a pretty thankless job, you might consider that to give him a bad attitude, right? But that was not the case. Swindoll says that he was one of the happiest men he had ever met in his life. In fact, George would walk around and he would sing. And most often he would sing songs anticipating the return of Christ. Things like, when the roll is called up yonder. He would sing these songs constantly. Well, there's one particular day, it was a Friday, and so everybody's ready to be done. It's a few minutes before five. And uh, Chuck looks at George and he says, Hey, George, are you ready? And George says, Uh-huh. And Chuck thought, Well, he doesn't understand what I'm asking. So he says, Oh, no, George, are you ready to go home? He says, Uh-huh, I am. <laughs> well, Swindoll thought, He's not getting it. So he says, George, you're not ready. Look at you, you're a mess. <laughs> About that time, George <laughs> unzips his coveralls and underneath he had a beautiful set of nice, clean clothes. And listen to what he says to Chuck in that moment. He says, I'm always ready to keep from getting ready, just like I'm ready for Jesus to return. I'm always ready to keep from getting ready, just like I'm ready for Jesus' return. That's the heart behind this passage this morning. That we are being called to always be ready to keep from getting ready as we anticipate the return of Christ. Those who've been seeking Jesus all their life, that's the day that they long for. John says to his reader, and I want to tell you this morning that that should be us. That should be us. One of those who seek Jesus with all our heart, with all our mind and all our strength, and we long for that day of His return. Well, John now shifts from that focus of that day to the character of the one who will appear. Look at verse 29. It says, If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us? That we should be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. His character is righteousness. He is righteous because His judgments are, are true and right and good. That Christ will come in, in judgment, but He's a just judge. Because his mission from the very point of, of all creation was motivated as an act of love. 
And here's where we see John kind of step back in our passage and catch his breath. In chapter 3, verse 1, my version says, See, see how great. Some of you may have, look, or behold. What I want you to imagine here is that John is waving his hands. Okay, He wants to make sure he has your attention. And he's saying, look at me. See this. Behold, look. Don't miss this. How great a love the Father has for us. I love the original language of that phrase because it brings about this idea of trying to describe something from another country. Something exotic that we really don't have a personal experience of. John is saying, the love that the Father has lavished upon us is out of this world. It's more than you could ever ask or imagine. Our finite minds cannot possibly grasp His infinite love. But then it's almost as if he says, but let me try, okay? Let me try. And this is what he does. He says, how great a love the Father has for us. That we should be called children of God. I want you to think about that. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Your life was deformed by sin. You were a rebel by nature. And there was nothing about you that would stir someone's heart towards you. In fact, not only did you not have that within you, you had no longing for it. But God. But God. Because of His great love, He made you alive together with Christ. He did for you what you could not do for yourself. He entered into our world and spoke to us words of truth. He pursued each of us with a great affection and then brought us to a place where we not, He not only spoke of His love, but He demonstrated it for us. He displayed His love on the cross and then invited us to experience the fullness of that love through fellowship with Him and the forgiveness of our sins. And there's something amazing that happened in that moment. Now I want you to use your sanctified imagination a little bit with me. Don, I'm going to ask you to come up here and and do this with me, your family, so you'll forgive me for not preparing you. Okay, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to use our sanctified imagination, all right? And we're going to imagine that this is the heavenly host. (laughs) For some of them, that's a big stretch, right? (laughs) But that's what we're going to pretend. And we're also going to pretend, (laughs) this is a bigger stretch, that I'm God. Okay? (laughs) But here's what happens, okay? On that day, when Dawn trusted in Christ, here's what happened. God stood up and He called all the heavenly hosts together. And He said, I want you to listen. Everybody listen. This is Dawn. Y'all have known her before because of your watch care over her. But I need you to know something. At this moment, this is my daughter. 
This is my child. I know her by name. I treat her as my own. In fact, you know what he said to all the heavenly host? He said, she is so important to me that every single thing that belongs to Jesus Christ, the one whom I've sent to take your place, all that belongs to Him is now hers. Every single thing. She is a co-heir with Christ. A daughter of God. Adopted into my family. And I love her as my own. That's what happened on that day. And that's what happens for every single one of us. See how great a love the Father has for us? That we should be called children of God? And such we are. But you also need to know that when you become a child of God, this verse tells us that you become an enemy of the world. When you become a child of God, you become an enemy of of the world. After all, why would they accept you who have been transformed by his love when they will not accept his love to begin with? You see, Christians are not people who should blend in with the world. They really shouldn't be. We should be those who stand out as ones who have been radically changed. In fact, I think the Bible searches for words to to try to describe this. And perhaps, at least in my opinion, one of the best ways that that happens is when it says, you're born again. You're born again. Which to me says, you're not even the same person anymore. Old things have gone. New things have come. Now you're still dealing with sin, but as a child of God, you are increasingly uncomfortable with letting it hang around. And over time, You grow and mature in your faith and increasingly become like the one to whom you've been united. Your Savior, Jesus Christ. So if they persecuted Christ after all that He tried to do, why would they accept someone who walks in the same manner as He did? Right? came across a very good article this week in Wall Street Journal. Before you get real impressed that I read the Wall Street Journal, you need to know that I don't, right? I was only pointed to this article by somebody. And it caught my attention. I was intrigued by it. It was written about a man by the name of Russell Moore, who is the new president of the Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberties Committee. Now, again, that's not something that normally interests me. But what he said caught my attention. He said with conviction that he believed that the Bible Belt is collapsing. Okay, that caught my attention. I wanted to know more. He says the Bible Belt is collapsing. He went on to say the reason that he felt that way is that that Christians no longer are the moral majority. Instead, they are becoming, and I love what he calls this, they are becoming they're a prophetic minority. No longer the moral majority. They are what he considers the prophetic minority. He explains his opinion by suggesting that the biblical values that we hold to no longer describe 
mainstream America like they did 50 or even 20 years ago. To illustrate his point, he gives a story of a, a friend that he had in college some two decades ago. This friend was an open atheist, okay? But he came to Mr. Moore one day and said, uh, hey, can you tell me what would be a good church that I could get involved in that really doesn't expect a lot from me? Right? Mr. Moore was intrigued by this. He says, why, why would you want to do that? And he says, well, because I'm running for office. And everybody knows that to be a good person, to be a good American, you have to be involved in a church somewhere. And Mr. Moore says that is no longer the case. Moore sees this shift not as a defeat, but as an opportunity, and I would agree. In fact, I would even say that it's probably good for the church to see ourselves as defenders of truth in a much larger, unbelieving society. It keeps us from being too comfortable with being in this world, and it reminds us that this is not our home. I agree with Mr. Moore's opinion that there is a shift in our culture where Christians can no longer ride the wave of the moral majority, but instead we must live lives and speak truths that now stand opposed by the majority opinion. And this is good. And the reasons it's good is because it will tell us if our convictions are real. You see, it's easy to believe when you're just going along with the crowd and it's the popular choice. But are you still convinced that it's true? Would you still stand for the name of Christ if you were persecuted because of it? I believe that time is coming. The world does not accept the love that has been lavished upon us and will not accept those who stand for its truth either. But again, this reality shouldn't be in a discouragement from, for us. It, it should actually encourage us. It should it strengthen our motivation because this world is not ultimately what we are living for, Right? We know firsthand that, that the things that the world offers are not ultimately what give us pleasure. There's something more. There's a, uh, a professor at DTS by the name of uh, Dwight Pentecost. Isn't that a great name, Dr. Pentecost? Uh, he's been there a long time. In fact, Dr. Pentecost is 98 years old and still teaching. An amazing man. And one of the things that he's most known for is his teaching on biblical prophecy. He wrote a book that... Uh, is very popular called Things to Come, and great man of God. One of the things that he did was he did a study of all the, the occasions in Scripture when it speaks of the Lord's return, the second coming of Christ. And when he did this, look at what he said. He said, almost without exception, these references of Christ's coming were followed by an exhortation to godliness and holy living. Pentecost makes the point that, that if we don't pay attention, we will miss the point of biblical prophecy. If we don't learn that it is there to conform us to the life of Christ until the day in which He does return. In other words, if Christ's coming doesn't impact the way we are living, then something's not right. We don't quite understand. That's what John wants us to understand. 
in our passage this morning. Because the bottom line is, we haven't arrived. Look at verse 2 of chapter 3. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. The bottom line is, until that day, we have not arrived. We're still in process. And really, we only now vaguely resemble that which we will, will be someday. Just think about your children. And when you look at them when they're small and young and you see certain attributes and abilities that they possess and, and you kind of look forward to what they may be someday, but you just don't know. And where this illustration breaks down is, as it relates to our children is, is sometimes what they become brings us great joy and sometimes it breaks, it breaks our heart despite how much we invest in them. But here's what I want you to understand. When it comes to what God intends for His children to become, there is only one possible outcome. You become like Him. That's what the Scripture says. You become like Him. John says our transformation is complete when we see Jesus in all His glory, or as he describes it, when we see Him just as He is. Now, here's why I think that's the case. When we see Jesus in all His glory, the Bible says that, that we will meet Him in the air. We saw that in that First Thessalonians passage, right? So what I know and what I take from that is whether I'm dead or alive, on the day his, of His return, I meet Him face to face in the air. And what that tells me is that in that moment, I understand firsthand the power of the resurrection because it has happened to me in that day. Here's the other thing that I believe happens. It says that we will see Him just as He is. And what that tells me is that I am washed completely clean of all the sin that has entangled me to that point. I know this is true because that's the only way that you can see Jesus for who He really is in all His glory. I mean, just think back to the Old Testament, right? Remember Moses wanted to see the glory of God? And God told him, you can't. Why? Because sinful man cannot look upon the holiness of God. So the best he could do was turn his back. And even that changed the countenance of who Moses was. But he didn't even come close to seeing the glory of God. But what this passage tells us is in the day of his return, we will. And so the only way that we can see the holiness of God is if we have been made holy as well. Perfect and sinless. It's almost like that picture of George, right? Where we unzip the, the coveralls of this sinful flesh and underneath are these beautifully bright white robes of righteousness. We will be transformed by the power of His resurrection, made clean, by the blood of the Lamb, living in the fullness of fellowship with Christ for all eternity from that moment on. John says, when you fix your eyes on this hope, you purify yourself. 
just as He is pure. That's, that's the point that Dr. Pentecost was trying to make. When our hope is on the return of Christ, it should always impact the way we live our lives today. It should motivate us to live with increasing purity. Because on the day of His return, we will be made perfect. But until that day, as we learned when we studied the book of Philippians, when when Paul writes early in chapter 1, he says, He who has begun a good work in you will perfect it. In other words, He is in the process perfecting until when? The day of Christ Jesus. What happens on that day? This verse tells us. We are made perfect, just as He is perfect. Everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies Himself, just as He is pure. Now, what I want you to see in that statement is that that there's a process going on that has something to do with what is done to us and not what we do. Okay, you look at the life of Christ, and there's no question that He lived in sinless purity from the day He came to be one with us, right? God incarnate. The Word became flesh. And one of the things that He told His disciples, He says, if you keep My commandments, you will abide in My love. Just as I have kept My Father's commandments and abide in His love. What that tells us is that obedience is the path to purity. This is not only, it's not about what you do apart from Him. It's about what He does in you when you trust in Him and walk in His ways. As you walk in fellowship with Christ, you become like the one to whom you've been united. That's a promise. And when that happens, you are made into the image of the one who has saved you. And you realize that this world is not your home that the things of the world do not satisfy the longings of your heart. It's that paradox that the Bible describes of of being in the world but not of the world, right? It it reminds me of a a term called the Stockdale Paradox. That that term was coined by an author by the name of Jim Collins in a book, Good to Great. I read that when I was at the hospital. It was a great book. But one of the things that uh, he does is he talks to to General Collins, who actually, actually wasn't General Collins, he was an admiral. Admiral Stockdale. And he was the highest ranking prisoner of war during the Vietnam era. And as a result, he underwent some tremendous torture for almost 10 years. And so when he was asked about how he was able to survive in such an environment, this is what he said. He said, I never doubted that one day I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into the defining moment of my life which in retrospect I would not trade. But what about the other prisoners? What about those who never made it out alive? What's the difference? Well, he was asked that question. Listen to his answer. It's very interesting. He said, the optimists are the ones who didn't survive. He said, they're the ones who said, we're going to get out by Christmas. And Christmas would come and Christmas would go. And then they'd say, we're going to get out by Easter. And then Easter would come. And Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving. And then it would be Christmas again. And eventually, he said, these people died of a broken heart. Failed expectations. 
the important lesson that Stockdale says is this. He says, you must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you cannot afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may be. It's another way of describing what the Bible says about living in the world, but not of the world had lunch with a friend this weekend, and we talked about the reality, the brutal facts that this world is not our home, that it is plagued with sin and disease and disappointments. These are the brutal facts. But like Stockdale says, we have to fix our hope and live with the conviction that we will prevail in the end no matter how bad it gets this side of heaven. Because we're going to get there. And one day we will see Him face to face. Or according to the words of the man who I think endured the greatest trials and all the testimony of Scripture, Job, right? He said, I know that my Redeemer lives. And one day He will stand upon the earth. And you know what we can add now with New Testament eyes? And you and I as children of God will be right there with Him. On that day. So here's my single application for you this morning. Isn't that great? You only have one. It's real easy. I want you to be consumed this week with thoughts about the return of Christ. Okay? I just want you to think about it every time you get a chance. I want it to be the music you listen to, the scriptures you read, whatever you do, focus on the return of Christ. There's a song, Mercy Me Sings, called Homesick. (laughs) Go listen to that song. We sing the song In Christ Alone. Go listen to that song. Some of you are fans of Chris Tomlin. I am. He has a song called I Will Rise. Listen to that song. In fact, let me give you just a few, the taste of what it says. It says, there's a peace I've come to know, though my heart and flesh may fail. There's an anchor for my soul. I can say it is well. Jesus has overcome, and the grave is overwhelmed. The victory is won. He has risen from the dead. And then he goes on to say, there's a day that's drawing near. When this darkness breaks to light and the shadows disappear, and my faith shall be my eyes, and I will rise when He calls my name. No more sorrow. No more pain. I will rise on eagle's wings. Before my God, fall on my knees, I will rise. That's what we need to set our minds on this week. Focus on the reality of His return. And and let's just give it a chance to, to prove to be true that if that's where our heart is fixed, that it purifies us in ways that we never imagined. Let's see if it's if it's true. Okay. Let me give you some verses. Let me just write these down. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 16. 1 Timothy 6, 13 through 16. Titus 2, 12. These are just a few. There's a whole lot more than that. But start there and see what those passages have to say. Listen to music that speaks of His return and see what that does as it impacts your heart this week. 
as we finish up this morning, I want to pray for us. Come and introduce yourself to these folks if you hadn't had a chance to meet them. And what a great celebration for you guys to be a part of our church family. So let me pray for us. God, we are so grateful for this morning. And just to be reminded of the hope that we have in you. To stop for a moment um, in the midst of um, a broken world. Full of distractions and disappointments. And things that well cause us to lose sight of the hope of your return. And so I do pray that as we've been challenged, myself included, this week to set our minds on your return, that we would be overwhelmed with the joy and thought of seeing you face to face, of meeting you in the air, of being completely cleansed, washed white as snow by the blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whom we find the forgiveness of our sins. And just remember and just consider that that's our home. And we get homesick just thinking about it. Father, thanks so much for these folks who have agreed to make this their church home. And while we're here, stand together as brothers and sisters in Christ, loving one another, encouraging one another, even more as the day draws near. What a blessing and a privilege to be a part of that which you've created in the body of Christ. We love you, Jesus. And we pray this in your name. Amen.